Welcome to Just Us for Justice from Consumer Attorneys of California. I'm CAOC President Micah Star Liberty, hosting today along with my dear friend and board member, Rockstar trial lawyer John Gomez. Hi, John. Hi, Micah. Hello. Super excited to be here. <laughs> um, I'm excited uh, that you're here. I am also very, very excited to introduce our superstar guest, John Morgan. Uh, John Morgan founded Morgan and Morgan in 1988 to represent real people, not the powerful. And today, it's the largest plaintiff's firm in the country with over 500 attorneys in multiple states. He's written two fantastic books that I recommend to every lawyer thinking about opening their own firm, and even those who've had firms open for a while. The first was called You Can't Teach Hungry, and the second was You Can't Teach Vision. And it's my extreme pleasure to introduce John Morgan. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thanks so much uh, for being here, John. Uh, I'm a huge fan. You're certainly one of my heroes. And the idea of these podcasts is to kind of have informal discussions with America's great trial lawyers so that our California lawyers can kind of get to know you on a personal level. So my first question would be, like, what was 12-year-old John Morgan up to? Like, what kind of kid was he? And then at what point in time did you decide you wanted to become uh, a lawyer? Well, 12-year-old John Morgan was probably a lot like uh, a 12-year-old John Gomez. And here's what I mean by that. I believe as I've gone through life, I look at different people, and I think many of us were born with a certain thing. I often ask people when I'm talking to them like you, I don't know how old you are, you look a lot younger than me, but sometimes I'll ask, were you a paper boy? And, and the reason, yes, sir. Answer would be yes, sir. I was. And the reason I know that is because there's a mentality inside the paper boy that was with him or her. Because there's paper girls, by the way. Oprah, who lives over this way, was a paper girl. <laughs> there is something inside of that kid that is entrepreneurial, that is driven. And the reason I always spot it in people, and the reason I ask you if you were a paper boy is because I almost knew you were a paper boy unless you were too young to be a paper boy. And then you would have been doing something else. And so what 12-year-old John Morgan was like was probably like most of the people that are trial lawyers in California. I had a paper out seven days a week, rain, sleet, snow in Lexington, Kentucky. And, but it's something within us. And so a 12-year-old John Morgan had a paper out, played Little League Baseball, played all the sports, had a lot of friends, and had a lot of fun. That all sounds pretty good. So when was it that, that John Morgan said, look, I'm going to become a lawyer? John Morgan decided, you know, First of all, a lot of things, I, I tell a lot of people that I meet, they'll say, you'll ask me a question. And sometimes I'll tell them, sometimes questions answer themselves. So the first question that was answered to me was, could I be a doctor? Can I be a dentist? Can I be a scientist? Can I be a CPA? The answer was no, 
because when I looked at math, it was like looking at hieroglyphics. It's like, I don't know what the fuck this means. <laughs> and so, so that was off the table. So I always knew that I was going to have to go towards sales or something with people. <clears throat> what happened in my life that was life changing is when I was in college, I got a phone call from my dad who called to tell me that my brother had been paralyzed in a diving accident at Walt Disney World. He's very close to me. Both me and my brother, Mike, we were roommates. Our two beds were right next together in Gainesville. We went to St. Augustine Church. We lit a candle. We drove home. We got there, and my brother, Tim, was in a bed spinning 360 degrees, paralyzed from the chin down. So that day was the worst day of my life. And during that day, you know, we're there and we're praying and nonstop prayers. And all of a sudden he had been injured while working at Walt Disney World. And then the legal process began. And we were poor people, so we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, the thought about how to hire a lawyer, where would we go? We had people coming to the hospital room, runners coming to the hospital room, everybody circling like vultures. I'm friends with Frank Carter's mothers, et cetera, et cetera. We finally hired a lawyer who turned out to be the wrong lawyer. And at the end of the day, Walt Disney World really fought Tim tooth and nail. So I got to see what it's like to be on the other side, to be desperate, to be little, to be powerless, to be helpless, to be hopeless. And Disney kept really fighting his heart. And then, because it was a workers' comp accident, it turned out to be only a workers' comp case. And Disney still fought him hard. You can return people to work in Florida. And so they said, well, hey, we're going to give you a job back. We'll make you an operator from 11 at night till 7 in the morning. Just really fucking with him. And I remember when all that was happening, at one moment, I just became enraged. I was enraged at the bullshit lawyer we had hired. I was enraged that Disney was treating him so shabbily. And I remember saying to myself, I know what I'm going to do. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish University of Florida. I'm going to go to law school. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to make all these motherfuckers do the right thing for the rest of my life. And so... And I used to tell people, I know what I'm going to do. So, I, so I've so i never done anything but this. I had a lot of big offers when I came out of college, out of law school. But I went to personal injury day one and made a lot less money than I would have made in one of the other firms. But it was not about money. And when things are not about money is when you do your best work. When it's, with, when it's for passion and righteousness and a higher purpose. And when you have those things, that's rocket fuel that is impossible to buy or to get. It's just like the paper boy. You're either a paper girl or you're not a paper girl. It's just within. Wow, a great story. Thank you. You've uh, achieved a tremendous amount of success and have grown your firm from a very small firm. Uh, to the largest in the country. Did you set out to do that? Never. I never. People ask me, you know, is this your grand plan? Well, how could it be? 
you know, my grand plan would have been if somebody told me I can be a lawyer, do what I'm doing, make a hundred thousand dollars a year for life and maybe get some COLA increases along the way. Back when we first started, I'd have signed that immediately. I mean, it was a hundred thousand dollars in 1982, 83 was unthinkable money. And so I just, it's really just been one foot in front of the other. And I tell people all the time, you know, life is luck. You just, you never know where it's going to take you. But if you don't walk, you never go anywhere. So I just kept walking. And then sometimes I ran and then sometimes I ran faster. <laughs> and do you still have the same hunger, uh, the same rage that motivates you as you once did? I still have the same rage because that is the fire that will never go out. I will never forget all of that. There's certain things in your life that you never forget. When I walk into my lobbies anywhere in America, when I see a client sitting there, I don't ever see a client. I see Tim. And the thing that will make me go batshit is when I hear one of our lawyers has been less to a client than they should have been. I tell, I tell our lawyers all the time, listen, these people had a lot of choices. They could have gone a lot of places. And for many reasons, they called me because of my story. And here's the thing. At the end of the day, yes, we're on a contingency fee basis. But at the end of the day, they're paying us a pretty good fee. And if you were in a commercial firm and representing the president of a bank, and the president of the bank called you, you would stop everything and pick up the phone for your client. And so what I tell our people is, and by the way, our clients at the end of the day are paying us more than the president of the bank is paying and not, you know, so what I tell all of our people is remember who they are. They're our bosses. These clients are not claimants. They're not plaintiffs. They're our bosses. Treat them exactly the way you would treat the president of a bank if they called you. If your client was the president of the bank, you would move heaven and hell to take their call. So do the same thing for your clients. One of the things that resonated with me from your books was um, how you categorize, for lack of a better term, levels of employees. So you've got the A folks, the B folks, and then the C folks. How transparent are you when you're communicating with other staff about who is in the A category, who is in the B, who is in the C, or is that kind of a closed door conversation? Well, with the lawyers, it's very open, A, A's, B's, and C's. With the staff, I don't want to do, I don't want to make that as open only because I don't want to hurt some, some people's feelings. Some people will never be able to do it. Some people never get it. And it's like, you know, when you had your children were little, you got the little league field, you know, all I really need to do is hit the ball to a kid a couple of times to understand what kind of, what, I, what am I dealing with? And I can look one ground ball to one kid and I can say, they're never going to be able to do it. So I don't want to hurt people's feelings, the staff, but the lawyers, they all know about A, B, and C. They all, I ask them to rate themselves. Are you an A, a B, or a C? 
the funny thing is when the B's say they're A's. And the funniest thing are when the C's say they're A's. What I find most often is that the C's are most likely to call themselves A's even more than the B's. They don't see it at all. I, I fired a guy one time one year, and um, I'd warned him the year before because I'm very sensitive to firing people because of just my back, my background. My dad lost his job a lot, so firing people is a big deal for me. But I'd warned this guy before the year before I'd gone in, and I told him, look, but I saw a picture of all four of his little girls on his credenza, and I couldn't bring myself to firing. And I said to him, hey, so-and-so, look at those little girls. I mean, I got my four children. That's what motivates me. When I go and look at those beds and see them counting on me, I said, I want you to turn around and look at them. So the next year, I'm having the same conversation, except I fired him. And he said to me, I just want you to know you're firing your best lawyer. And I said, do you understand what you're – I said, you're the only person I'm firing this year. <laughs> I said, and you're telling me that you're my best lawyer, and I'm telling you you're my worst lawyer. There's a disconnect. And so, yes, it's very transparent. The Bs that you know are going to be As are the ones who, when they self-evaluate, they say, I think I'm a B plus, but I'm almost an A. And when they write that down, you know you've got the winner within right there because they're, they're, they're actually being introspective, but they're also telling you, watch, watch out for me. And those are the ones that usually bloom and emerge. Hey, John, I have a, I have a question, you know, because I'm a dad. And so I want to talk about John Morgan, the dad. And so I know your boys work with you. I've been very impressed with them. Um, and so as you're growing this huge firm, you know, as a dad, you know, how are you able to be a good dad? And I think as importantly, you know, I see how your boys work. They're dedicated to the craft. They're not lazy. They're hardworking. They're ambitious. Like, how, how do you make that happen? Because I struggle with that. You know, my, I feel like my kids have a life I never have. And I get worried they're never going to be hungry or angry. <laughs> Or, or motivated for anything. And so I'm wondering like what tips you can give because you apparently pulled it off. Well, you know, with kids, one thing I will tell you about kids is this, remember this, your child is one friend away from total disaster. The hardest thing a father or mother ever has to do is to separate your child from one of their friends because you know they're a problem. I did that twice in all these years. Both times I was right. Both times was very difficult, but I knew I had to get those bad apples out of the way. And so I would just give that parental advice. What we did when we, they were growing up, our kids were just, you know, boom, 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 boom. My, my, my kids are 38, 36, 34, 32. That's, that's how it is now. But when they were little, and we start to saw, see that we were going to have some affluence, I wanted to make sure because I felt that my greatest asset was my hunger. I felt that my greatest asset was the fact that I had been hopeless and helpless and powerless. And I, I, I loved having that, but how can you give that to your kids when they're jumping on the bed at the Ritz Carlton at Central Park and then going to the Yankees game? How the fuck do you, 
you know, and they're exactly. you know, and they're and they're gouged and they're going through the mini bar getting M and M's. So and they they live with you. So what I did is I had a couple of things. One, I saw a lot of parents who had affluence and they would buy their kids BMWs and Mercedes and these brand new cars uh, at high school. Well, my, my kids were driving 10 year old navigators and, you know, they never had those real nice cars. I never let them have that. I made them work. One thing I told them all is that you're going to be working. Luckily, we had an attraction in Orlando that, that they worked at a lot. And one time they were at Bishop Moore High School and they, it was Christmas and uh, Mike said to me something. I said, well, you're not doing anything. You all got to go down to Wonderworks and get your schedule. And Matthew said, well, none of the kids at Bishop Moore are working over Christmas break. And I said, well, I know that's wrong. And Mike said, no, nobody's working, Daddy. I'm just telling you, nobody's working. I said, that's wrong. He goes, no, it's not. I said, I'll tell you why it is. You two motherfuckers are working <laughs> over Christmas break. And I said, the good news is you can pick your 40 hours. You can go eight to five or you can go two, but you're working. And I never let them stop working. Dan, the baby, I had to fire him at Wonderworks one time, but I told him, you got to go get a job. He had to go to Boston Market, and it was the worst days of his life working at Boston Market. But I told him, if you don't have a job, you can't ever go out of the house. You have to make sure that they work. Can you, can you teach hungry? My son Matthew said he's going to write a book called You Can Teach Hungry later oh. in life. But what I really focused on because I couldn't teach them hunger is I wanted to teach them and talk to them about compassion and kindness and justice and mercy. So knowing that I couldn't make them me, I wanted them to be, to be always thinking about others in a, in a more compassionate way. And I think that by and large that, that happened, that worked for me. Thank you. What's the best piece of advice you were ever given? The best piece of advice that I was ever given was do what you say you're going to do. Uh, my mentor in business, not, he wasn't a lawyer, was a guy named Bill Dimitri. And Bill taught me so many things. He was a big developer in Florida. And by ch happen chance, we just became, he was an older man, but we became friends. And I watched his ethics. One time he had a deal with somebody to sell them a bowling alley. And then somebody else came in with a contract for a Home Depot, but he sold it to the guy he had the handshake deal with. He said, you know, do what you say you're gonna do. And I have found as life has gone on, if you do what you say you're gonna do, people trust you, they come to you with deals because they know they can count on you. Referring, listen, referring lawyers. How many times have people not been paid their referral fee? How many fights have there been about money? Bill Dimitri taught me one time, he, somebody was trying to fight a broker on a commission. He said, John, listen to me. Always pay the broker. Don't fight the broker. 
I said, why? He said, they'll always bring you the deals first. And, and that does happen. People know who we, every business, every community is a small world. If I give you the name of five lawyers in California, both of you are going to have the immediate reaction and probably the same reaction. Scumbag, dirtball, great guy, honest, but it's going to be the same thing. And over a lifetime, it adds up. So if you do the right thing and do what you say you're going to do, it all works out. And, and so, John, I, I have a question um, about time management because, um, you know, you're a dad, you're a granddad, you're running the biggest firm in the country, you've got political sort of involvement, you have involvement in other businesses. It looks like you like to have a, a good time from time to time, a good meal and a cocktail. You know, you're a normal guy. Uh, how do you pull all that off? Do you sleep or not sleep? Like, how do you do it? Well, two things. The first thing is that, that where people make a mistake, especially trial lawyers who are high driver A personalities. Those men and women don't believe anybody can do it but them that if I'm not in front of this client, it won't happen. If I'm not picking this jury, it can't happen. If I'm not, and what happens is, then you're responsible for everything. And if, if, if you're responsible for everything, it just can't happen. So there's two things I do is one, I identify inside of my organization, people that I call send delete. If you send something to them, you know it's done and you can delete and not ever worry about it. I can say, you know, hey, we got this, you know, here's a new case, forward to you, would you call them? Delete, because I know you're gonna do it. Now, there's other people you send it to and maybe three hours later you write back and say, did you call this client? That's not a send delete person. Once you get these send delete people, then you can start to build and delegate and ruthlessly delegate. And then you can spend your time on what's most important. The second thing that I would say, this is something new that I, I learned uh, last year and it's kind of guiding me going forward for all of you people watching today who believe that you are irreplaceable in your law firm, in your business. Just remember this, graveyards are full of irreplaceable people. And when I heard that, when I first heard it, I thought to myself, what the fuck does that, what is, you know, what does that mean? And then I started to think, you know, what it means is people die and things go on. And so what I took from that was I'm going to expand the ruthless delegation. I'm going to work for a day in a firm where when I am in the graveyard, there's not a hiccup. When some lawyers die, the firm's in. They scatter like crazy. There's no plan. I tell people all the time, hope is not a plan. So as I've gotten older, I have began to expand my circle of trust from the movie. I've ruthlessly delegated, and I've purposely let other people do things that years ago I would have had my fingers all over it and make decisions. And slowly but surely, 
I'm releasing the reins. Can you tell us the kinds of things that you do to kind of recharge your spirit or get your enthusiasm for whatever project it is you're working on back? Well, I try to move around a lot. I'm lucky I've got this where I am here. I'm in Maui right now. I come out here in the winter time. And if the whales don't recharge you and invigorate you, you cannot be recharged. The whales, the rainbows, the water, the mountains. I mean, so I've got some places, you know, happy places. I got, we go in the summer to a lake house in New Hampshire and we have a beach house close to our other house. So I like being on the water. I like being with my family. So at the beach in Florida, we have three beach houses right in a row. So one time I watched a movie called My Fat Greek Wedding or something like that, and all the family lived together. And I thought, God, that's the greatest thing in the world. You walk outside and all your kids and grandkids are there. And so that that does recharge me. And, um, and I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what's next. And, and then what I do every year is as the year goes on, I keep a list of things that I want to do. And then the beginning of, the, of this coming year, I then put a list of three things that I want to do and then I'm going to do and that I will do. And I stay on task with completing those things. And what motivates you to be that disciplined? Is it the hunger again? It's the paper boy. It's the paper girl. It's just in you. You know, Warren Buffett was a paper boy. Cheryl Tiggs was a paper girl. Oprah was a paper girl. Jack Welch was a paper boy. John Gomez was a paper boy. Brian Panish, he laid in bed and ate Twinkies all day and didn't do shit when he was a little kid. We'll, we'll be deleting that piece out. <laughs> wait, yeah, wait till, you know, Panish will say he walked, Panish will tell us he walked to school barefooted. But, but, but no, he's the same, look, Brian Panish is the same guy. You know, it, it was all about sports and winning and, and hustling. So there's really nothing you have to do. What, what, what goes on in life is this. Most people have a satiable appetite. If they get to here or there, if that's enough. If I make $250,000, that's enough. If I make $500,000, that's enough. And I have found that 99 point something percent of America have a satiable appetite. It is people like the ones watching this webinar and like the two people hosting this webinar who have what I call an insatiable appetite. It's not greedy, it's not, it's not any of that, it's just, it's just who you are. You just wanna keep playing. A lot of times people say, you know, I'm working for my family, I'm working for my family, I'm, I'm, I'm hard working for my, that's all bullshit. They're working because they wanna see their scorecard. It's, they, they, the family benefits a great way, but they were gonna be working that way if they had four kids or no kids. We work because we want to win. We work because we like to keep score. Would anybody listening to this today want to play tennis if you didn't keep score or play one-on-one -on -one if you didn't keep score? 
And so for us, this is our competition. This is how we win. This is how we fulfill our paper route. We buy the paper route. We deliver the papers. We get paid. We buy the route next door. We expand. And so that's what I would say. And it's, and it can't be taught. It can't be learned. It's just, it's like being funny. You can't be funny. You can't teach funny. You can only be funny. There's something you do, John, though, um, to, that to me almost seems inconsistent with competition and winning. And that is you give away your secret sauce. You know, you write book, you know, you can't teach hungry. You write this book, can't teach vision. You know, you're very free with your time. You, you spent time talking to me about growing my firm. I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know, and to me, it's like a kin of like a, a Jim Harbaugh, you know, uh, inviting Ohio State quarterback into in, to work on like uh, footwork or something. It just seems like not consistent with competition. So how come you do that for other lawyers? Well, what I really believe is this: that almost everything that I that I that I have, I learned from somebody else. That somebody, you know, I was in New York City uh, a couple of years ago, and at breakfast, Rex Paris told me something that he was doing which was, I'd never heard it before. And I came back and I implemented it and it has increased value on certain type of cases. I can't even describe the amount of money. And so the Rex Paris's and guys like you all have shared with me, so I feel like it's okay to share with you because I do believe that rising tides lift all boats. I believe the better you are and the better I am. It's like, you know, we're all involved in this roundup litigation. That's not just happening because of me. That's happening because of people, you know, way, way beyond me. And so that's one thing. But as far as giving away my secrets, I will just tell you this. When I was a little boy, I was an amateur magician. And later, I became a magician at Walt Disney World when Disney first opened. And I was all over the park and all over the hotels doing magic. But when I was in the stores doing magic, I would demonstrate the magic tricks. And then there would be a girl at the counter, a guy at the counter who would check them out. And I would sell every day thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of magic tricks. And when they opened it up, they got to see the secrets, the secret sauce that you're talking about. They saw it. There it is. But just knowing the secret, that, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. And these tricks are so fucking hard <laughs> that you just throw it away. Yeah. You just throw it away. It's like, what, you know, shrinking, you know, they're out there reading, they want to do it right away. But I spent hours and hours and hours and hours in front of a mirror just, you know, making a coin disappear. And so the secret sauce and the secrets are one thing, but that is about 1%. You have to want it and you have to be aggressive, and you have to be, the most important thing is relentless. Thanks. You, you just mentioned Rex Paris, who of course is a giant here in California and nationally. And one of the things that I like about seeing Rex talk is he always has all these interesting books that he's reading and can recommend. Um, are you reading any interesting books that you would recommend to the listeners? I'm always reading books that I recommend. I, 
I'm, the one I'm reading right now, though, I don't know if I'd recommend because I started it. It's on Bob Iger's story at Disney. And as I was reading the book, the pandemic hit and Disney World closed <laughs> while I'm reading this tribute to his life. And I kept thinking, my, but I do recommend that book because it's a book about leadership. There are so many lessons that Robert Iger puts inside of his book. I said to my wife last night, I said, can you imagine the meetings that are going on at Walt Disney right now? Can you imagine what they're dealing with? I mean, we know what we're dealing with. I'm looking at your beautiful living room and I see Gomez must be going surfing in a minute. He's got his shock hat, he's got his shock hat on and surfboard hanging there. But can you imagine what Walt Disney World? So I love that book. Uh, there's a, uh, a book about uh, the trillion dollar coach, a Silicon Valley guy, which is a book I love. A book I finished is called Shoe Dog about Phil Knight, and that's all about the relentless spirit, never letting go. And uh, But, of course, the two books that I have to recommend more than any other in America except for the Bible would be You Can't Teach Hungry and You Can't Teach Vision at Trial Guides. Is there a third on its way? There is a third in my mind, but... When I wrote You Can't Teach Vision, the first thing I said to myself, I started having ideas for You Can't Teach Vision, but I never wanted just to write something to write something and waste people's time. The thing that I hate more than anything else is when my time is wasted. When somebody says, I want to have a meeting, I got a great idea, and you sit down, and two minutes into it, you're like, what the fuck am I doing here? How can I get out of here? So when I'm at work, I'll have my secretary come in after 15 minutes and walk in and just say, your conference call is holding right now. If I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I'll say, I'll call them back later. If I'm interested in what I'm hearing. If I'm not interested, I look and I go, oh my God, the time has flown by. Let me get back with to you. So that's my advice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I second uh, John's recommendation for those books. I made all my lawyers read them. Um, Thank you. And they really, you know, I think grew as lawyers and uh, became a whole lot more aware of sort of the, the, the business and service, customer service implications of providing law, you know, to ordinary people. So really highly recommend both. Um, Thank you. So John, like your email signature says, faith without works is dead. And so what does that mean? What, why is that of such importance to you? Well, because I believe that in life that we have a responsibility to return our good fortune. I believe that most of my life has been luck. And sometimes even bad luck becomes good luck. I lost, you know, my dad lost his job in Kentucky. I, I was very happy in Kentucky and all of a sudden, you know, not only are we poor, but we're living in Florida with no friends and no, and always, you know, you're like, what, what just happened? But that bad luck turned out to be good luck because I got to Florida and I got a good school district and I look back and my cousins in Kentucky and I go, that's what I could have been or, you know, or this. And so one of the things I've always told my kids is if you go left, you're a genius. If you go right, you're lost. 
Sometimes that's all it is. Sometimes we just went left instead of right. And back to the very first question, did I ever see this firm being this? No, but I went left one day and there, there was something better. And, and so what we have to always focus on is a lot of what we have is just pure luck. And when you recognize that, you don't get a torn rotator cuff patting yourself on the back. You get perspective. And, and this is for all three of us on this phone call. If we all started again tomorrow and started, none of this would be. Tim would, may not have gone to the Polynesian Hotel to do work that day. You may have not gone to a bar and met your wife. You may have not uh, gone to a convention and met your partner. It's all, it's all a crapshoot. And when you realize that life is luck, you spend more time on gratitude. Now, as we get towards, I don't know how old you are, but the older you get, you get to a point where you start to focus on what, what's next. You start going from success to significance. And what I mean by faith without works is not minus, it's from a Bible passage, but all these people always talk about all that they're doing, all they're doing, all they want to do. But listen, you can talk about it, but until you do it, it's just talk. And so I spend a lot of time praying to God and for God, because, you know, look, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wild proposition that there's a God after this is all over. And so a lot of my praying is about, you know, give me faith, but I believe you get more faith when you do service work. And I believe that that service work is what brings you closer to whatever God you're thinking about. There's a prayer by mother Teresa and it goes like this is called a simple path. And it says the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of love is service to others. And the fruit of service is peace. And for all the money you have and all the money people have, they don't, a lot of them don't have peace. The peace component comes from the works component, from the service component. And just an act of kindness will make you feel better. Giving somebody a ride home, doing something for someone else, little small acts of kindness are enough to qualify as service work and give you peace. And so, so that's what it's about. It's all about not just talking about it, but, but living it. So I put it in my signature page to remind myself every day. I mean, we out here in Maui, you know, we've all been worried about money. Uh, but, we still, I told my wife, you know, she wanted to give some money to a food bank. And I said, absolutely. And, and that's, and these are the hardest times to write checks because we're all like, what's going to happen on the other side of this. And so faith without works really speaks to itself. And basically what it says is uh, you can talk about it or you can do about it. And if you do about it, you're going to have a piece about it.
What a beautiful note to end on. I just want to say thank you so much, John Morgan. Thank you to my fantastic co-host, John Gomez. You've been listening to Just Us for Justice, produced by Chris Weaver, executive producer, Eric Bailey. I'm Micah Star Liberty, CAOC president. We'll see you again. The Just Us for Justice podcast is brought to you by the Consumer Attorneys of California. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes. Music was provided by www.bensound.com. Questions or comments? Email us at justuspodcast at caoc.org.